Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Well, here we are. We are back during a rough week for the country, but the bloviating here will never stop. And we brought again for a repeat performance our honorary special guest hack, all-around friend and good guy, Robert Gibbs. Robert, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. And don't in any way associate the fact that Murphy identified us as bloviators that we called you in for backup here. I don't, I don't want you to take it personally. <laughs> I know on the bloviation scale, you guys have normally have it covered, but I'm happy to continue. <laughs> yes. This, these are extraordinary <laughs> times and we need extra help bloviating. <laughs> in, in these trying times, we need all the help we can get, so we went to the best. It's election day in Wisconsin, improbably. We have a stay-at-home order and an election that requires people to leave and go to polling places. In the city of Milwaukee, they have shrunk their 100-and-something polling places down to five uh, because they couldn't get any election judges who were willing to uh, risk their lives and other people's lives in order to uh, fulfill this mandate. You guys know the history. The governor was late in uh, calling for a postponement of the primary, which has happened in many other states. But he did go to the legislature on Saturday and ask them to postpone it and turn it into a mail-in election in May. Everyone from the president on down rejected that. And there are reasons for that, which we can discuss that are quite political. I mean, what do you guys think about this? Well, it's horrible from a public health point of view. I mean, this is one where we're going to talk about the politics of it, particularly on the White House level. But the the right thing to do here is really clear. And this is ridiculous. Now, it's a low stakes election. I don't think a lot will happen. I doubt you'll see even with an ultra low turnout, a big Bernie comeback. But it's horrible. Before you comment on this, let's let's listen to the president's exchange about this with John Carl from ABC, because I think it was pretty enlightening. My question is, and, and I asked this a couple of weeks ago, I want to see if you've made any progress on this. Looking ahead to the fall, are you taking steps to ensure that the general election will happen, even if this pandemic has reemerged or hasn't gone away? The general and, election will happen on November 3rd. In Wisconsin, what happened is I, through social media, media put out a very strong endorsement of a Republican conservative judge who's an excellent, brilliant judge. He's a justice. And... I hear what happened is his poll numbers went through the roof. And because of that, I think they delayed the election. Concerned about people going to in-person I don't know. Why didn't he do it before? He's doing it right before the election. Excuse me. Why did he do this two weeks ago? All of a sudden, excuse me, all of a sudden an election, which is taking place very soon, gets delayed. Now, I just endorsed him today. And it was a very strong endorsement. His polls, he's gone very high up. And all of a sudden, the governor comes out, the Democrat governor, by the way, comes out and says, oh, we're going to move this election. So I don't know. I'm sh- I hope you're right. But, I hope but, you're but do right. you think every state in this country should be prepared for mail-in voting? In no, case because we're in a I think a lot of people cheat with mail-in bo- voting. I think people should vote with ID, voter ID. I think voter ID is very important. And the reason they don't want voter ID is because they intend to cheat. When you get something, when you buy something, you look at your cards and credit cards and different cards. You have your picture on many of them, not all of them, but on many of them. You should have a picture on your on your for voting. It should be called voter ID. They should have that. And it shouldn't be mail in. Excuse me. 
It shouldn't be mail-in voting. It should be you go to a booth and you proudly display yourself. You don't send it in the mail where people pick up all sorts of bad things can happen by the time they sign that, if they sign that, if they sign that, by the time it gets in and is tabulated. No, it shouldn't be mailed in. You should vote at the booth and you should have voter ID. Because when you have voter ID, that's the real deal. Thank you very much. We'll see you tomorrow. Robert Gibbs, leaving aside the fact that the president himself voted by mail in Florida, there's a lot to unpack here. There's a tremendous amount. The, the answer is basically emblematic of exactly the role we see the president playing right now, which is not president, right? We should start by pointing out in the 2018 elections, he voted by mail or absentee, whatever moniker you want to label it. And in the Florida primary, requested to vote by mail. So I will say this. You, you see the lines in Wisconsin this morning, and you see them stretch for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet because, as you mentioned, instead of 180 polling places in Milwaukee, we have five. I, I do not know functionally what the difference between those pictures are and the outrageous pictures of hundreds and hundreds of people sitting on a beach in Florida or in Georgia or somewhere else. Granted, they're not in bathing suits playing drinking games, but do do we think that that this is acceptable at a moment when half of America is trying to tell the other half of America to stay at home? The entire theme of this problem of our response is mixed messaging. Yeah. We have somebody telling you to stay at home while we have an election. We're saying you should wear a mask, except I'm not going to wear one. And there there. I don't know how the American public is supposed to filter this. And I know that in a place like America, there shouldn't be a choice between not getting sick and participating in democracy. Somebody has to grab a hold of this very quickly. My suggestion, Mike, uh, is for you to call Mitt Romney right after we tape this. Utah is a vote-by-mail state. And I think somebody like Mitt Romney is going to have to get involved with taking the taboo out of vote by mail out of this election, because if Dr. Fauci's right and we see this virus come back before we have large immunity in the fall, we're going to be dealing with this and we can't plan for it a day or two days before a national election. You know, the funny thing is, and I'll get on right on that, Gibbs. Uh, now, now it's my problem. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I doubt it would have any difference. The, the president doesn't think about public health. I listened to that sound and I thought we should really put this perfect moment of Trump performance into the space capsule and shoot it out so the aliens can yeah. see what happens when you elect the asshole on the far bar stool of president <laughs> of the United States. Because it was a complete telling Trump rant. It's got nothing to do with public health. He doesn't care about public health. He thinks, because one, somebody in a meeting somewhere talked to him about voter ID, which we all know is actually a term used in campaigns to go through the list of registered voters and try to identify who's undecided, who's not, who's for you, and then turn them out. But he, he heard ID, so he thought driver's license and picture. And somebody else told him that vote by mail is going to be bad for you. The little secret is... Republican political hacks for years have been incredibly supportive of vote by mail. We built the California Republican Party back when we could win on mail-in absentees. That was a Republican creation. And generally, 
you know, vote by mail is not a bad thing. But what, what somebody, you know, politically for us, what, what somebody told Trump was, oh, back to your fantasy. They're all going to come in swarms of these people and fraud. Trump always projects fraud because Trump personally sees everything through the lens of fraud because he's fraudulent. You know, what would I do? I'd try to steal it. So Trump will whip up the party about this because it's his own fear uh, about his political future. And the only thing he really cares about and uh, I, you know, if there are anybody left in the Republican Party and Romney's one of them, we, we ought to stand against it. Because if this thing – now, I, I have a feeling that the situation won't be as bad in November as it is today in Wisconsin on the public health side. But we don't know that. We have to build the apparatus for vote by mail. It's a clear defend the democracy question. So there are a couple of elements here that I think we have to – because I think it has long-term implications uh, for the November election. Number one – yeah, the president clearly staked out a position against uh, mail-in voting. You know, the Democrats had a $2 billion package to help states prepare for mail-in voting in November, among other things, uh, relative to the elections. And uh, Trump went on Fox News and said the things they had in there were crazy. They had things, levels of voting that if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again, which was, you know, Trump treats these uh, Fox News appearances like candidates do uh, speeches at fundraisers. I think if you're a strategist, uh, uh, you know, the thing you fear the most is what your candidate's going to say at a fundraiser because he's among friends and thinks that he can let his yeah, hair down or she can let her hair down. That's where that's where Obama did uh, his uh, thing about clinging to guns and religion. That's where Romney did his 47% thing. That's where Hillary did her baskets of deplorables thing. And Trump treats Fox News that way. It's like he, he thinks that only friends are listening, and he is— candid and his and what he's basically saying is well if a lot of people vote i'm going to lose but what uh, what happened in wisconsin was you know it's ridiculous by the way to suggest that he made an endorsement in the morning and this guy's poll numbers shot through the roof during the day and the governor then acted because he was so alarmed by it but uh, there is a supreme court race there that's of real importance in wisconsin that republicans care about they think they have a better chance with a lower turnout in this election. The state Supreme Court, which is dominated by uh, conservative Republicans, affirmed that. And then it went up to the Supreme Court that voted. And the U.S. Supreme Court, five to four, uh, affirmed going ahead with the election. And what it suggests is the courts are not going to intervene if it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. If yeah. there's a suggestion that uh, there is an effort to suppress vote by not allowing states uh, the tools they need to prepare for voter, uh, uh, you know, for a mail-in election. There is absolutely no evidence that mail-in balloting is less secure, just as there was no, I mean, people have been mailing in ballots for as long as we've been alive. Soldiers mailed in ballots during the Civil War. Uh, in order to uh, have their vote count. So, you know, what I, what, what is concerning is that this becomes a whole new technique to try and suppress voter turnout in November, and that could have real implications for the election. By the way, Wisconsin will be ground zero for Well, that. it'll delegitimize it, which we cannot allow. And let's be clear, I mean, the reason why there are five polling locations instead of 180 in Milwaukee is because of this virus, they can't get anybody to work the polls. So under Trump's voter ID admonition, who's checking their ID? Right. 
Are we going to have enough of people to do that? Right now, the National Guard is partially deployed in Wisconsin. You know, as you you talked uh, both about, I mean, this is a, um, he's got a solution in search of a problem. Um, And uh, again, I just think that, uh, and I hope the problem he's trying to solve is how you get Donald J. Trump reelected. That's the problem no, he's totally, trying to solve. And what he's concerned about is that this mail-in voting, by increasing turnout, it will will be will be bad for him. And uh, your point, uh, Murphy, is I think a really important one because my view is that there are only two outcomes in this election. One is that Donald Trump gets reelected. The other is that Donald Trump. Uh, contends that the election was fraudulent. There's no third option. He will not right. come out of the White House and wave the white flag and say, you know, I fought my be- I fought my hardest, I did my best, but the people have spoken. These are words that you will never hear from the lips of Donald Trump. So anything that uh, anything that plants the, the the notion of delegitimization serves that purpose, which is bad for our country. It is. It's bad for the institution. I don't. I don't think it means anything as they, you know, throw the tarp over them and, and hustle them out the door. But but I agree. It it gives them something to work with. I actually think this April thing is in some ways a win uh, because it's going to be a bit of a train wreck. The turnout will be very low. And who knows? I will be happy if we win that Supreme Court race. But sorry, can't can't not be a political hack. But it'll it'll be a wreck. It'll be a cause celeb. And it'll be such a wreck, it'll increase awareness and the pressure to get California or Washington State-style large-scale permanent absentee voting up and running for November. So I think this thing in some ways is like a small skirmish in a larger war that may accrue to the, uh, to the better good in the end because it's going to be a mess. How do you guys think the show is, is going? By the way, President uh, Gibbs just uh, fired another press secretary. Uh, today, uh, this will be yeah. so he'll hire his what fourth now? Is that fourth? Yeah, does that make any difference? Stephanie Worst Grisham job in Washington. Uh, is unless you watch Fox News, you don't really know who Stephanie Grisham is because she only appeared on Fox and she never right. ha- had a press briefing in uh, <laughs> eight or ten months, however long she's been the press secretary. It is remarkable that a, a white somebody holding the title White House press secretary never actually participated in a briefing inside the White House briefing room. Uh, I would also suggest that if you want to know how poorly managed the staff is in the White House, this woman held the title of White House press secretary, White House communications director, and communications director for the first lady. That is at a minimum three separate jobs. So, I mean, it gives you a sense of the fact that in reality, Donald Trump is the White House press secretary. Donald Trump is the White House national security advisor. Yeah. He's the chief epidemiologist. He is the scheduler. He's he's everything. And um, uh, I don't think he is ever going to allow somebody to walk in that room and answer questions and play by Washington's rules and those rooms rules because he goes into that room and breaks all those rules on a daily basis. And in some ways, I think does himself at least some political good in doing some of it. I I am very, very scornful of a lot of what he's done in that press room since he seized control of the podium on March 16th when he realized that he had to acknowledge that this was a crisis and that maybe he could command big audiences, which is the, uh, you know, which is the sin qua non for Trump. 
uh, in uh, by 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 holding these briefings every day, and increasingly he's turned them into uh, exercises in in self-adulation about what a great job he's doing, and in um, defying anyone who would say otherwise. So when reporters yesterday, a Fox News reporter asked him about the Inspector General's report out of HHS, saying that the administration was slow in getting materials to uh, uh, to the places where, where they were needed. And he completely cut her off and went on a rant. And fin- uh, John Carl again confronted him about the inspector general and who appointed this inspector general and what's their name now. He appointed the inspector general. Uh, but, you know, the implication is any criticism of how he has functioned is political and any difficult questions are politically motivated by a uh, uh, by the media that is that are meant to embarrass him and that are anti-American and unpatriotic because they're not celebrating the great uh, achievements. This is fitting into his rubric, guys. This is the way Trump fashions everything. And the question is, can can he impose his his rubric on a pandemic? Well, no. I mean, that's his main problem. Biology doesn't react to spin. But back to the press secretary, no doubt they put a lot more secretary into the job than press. Not a job a lot of people want, but I think there's another dimension to it. You have the new chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and because they have that Lord of the Flies culture there of all killing each other with leaks and everything, um, it's clear that he wants to control that channel. So goodbye, Grisham, who now has to retreat to Fort Melania, which is her place to make trouble from, and it'll be a Grisham loyalist. I, I, I think his former congressional press secretary is in the hunt for this because I think he wants to protect himself because he knows he's in this horrible thing. There's also talk of good old Kaylee uh, McEnany, who I think is a complete crank and stunning to me that in the Republican Party we've come to the level of, of having people like that elevated the real jobs, but that's the management rules of this place. It's, it's survive, kill, stab. There's no team and no power they're all this is what you said x it's all about trump and so these people kind of these functionaries uh are more cosmetic than anything else at least the traditional role we all know of as press secretary but you dismiss my question uh and uh i really and and i don't think that we should um i don't think we should uh dismiss it which is the half of the country that likes trump seems to be uh taking a more positive view of of how he's behaving the, the other half is not and his approval ratings are, you know, about where they've been, ranging in the low to mid uh, 40s. So, I mean, he may not have control completely of the virus. I honestly hope they do. There's some uh, positive signs in terms of leveling off in some places, but still a long way to go. But has he taken control of the political discourse? Well, he's certainly trying to, and he's trying to bend it to his will. Uh, and and you can watch it. You know, I obviously spent a decent amount of time inside that room and have watched how things get conducted and how they ask questions. And if you watch a Trump press conference, he listens to a question up until the point where he thinks he needs to interview, uh, uh, interrupt the questioner to either answer what he has done well or to push back quickly on what he's done right. Um, he interrupts a lot. He does not let them finish their question. And I think he's not taking the long view of how history is going to look at this or the short-term view of yesterday's reality show episode. He is just, as you said, trying to push through the lens of we've tested more people. 
we've got supplies to people and we're doing a good job. And I think he, he believes, I think in his heart of hearts, he knows how far behind they are. But I think his belief is that if he can say certain statistics and figures loud enough, long enough, and often enough, that he can get people to believe that they have done a good job. I do think Mike's right in the fact that ultimately they will not be able to spin this. But I think in the absence of of what we know or how we know this ends, uh, he's playing the only real card I think he has. And I think he sometimes plays it really effectively. Now, again, we talked about it in a previous show. I think it it, it hurts on some of the things that, that he sends off obviously visual cues at, at yelling at women that I don't think play well nasty, with yeah. suburban women voters. But I think he is. Uh, I think he's imposing his will in a room that, quite frankly, usually, usually the people in those seats impose their will. If you'll remember, David, I, I was adamantly opposed to ever taking Barack Obama into that room. I, I wanted him to do Q and A in a room like the East Room or somewhere else that was a bit more presidential. I, I think the, that that room, the rules are made by the reporters, uh, but quite frankly, not in the Trump era. Yeah. Oh, and, and by the way, Murphy, the new White House press secretary is indeed Kaylee McEnany. Oh, my goodness. She was a colleague okay. of mine at CNN. Well, all right. I pray for our nation. But, but Gibbs, I think you're totally right. Although I will say as there's a method to Trump's crazy. As we've spoke about a zillion times before, he's a salesman. He's a huckster. He's always selling. ABC, always be closing. That's who he is. So he's thinking, all right, regardless of the facts – I'm going to go out and sell optimism because I'm a salesman. It's like you walk into the car dealership right, and right. you're having your midlife crisis and you glue your toupee in, in place and the the uh, salesman puts you in the shiny red Corvette. Oh, you ought to go drive by the modeling academy. They're going to love you in this car, pal. Well, the media shows up and they always say, hey, loser, get out of that car, you loser. Go get a gray Honda Accord. That's what you ought to be driving. So they're telling the truth, but they're no fun at the party. So in this thing, instead of being a president, Trump is playing to his world by saying, hey, we got a miracle cure. How's that? Hey, I, I talked to you know the pillow guy, and he's getting together with Oracle, and they're, they're going to solve it all. And we're almost done. It's going to be great, great, great. Well, the media is doing which expert can predict more deaths. And so some of what Trump does, selling that it's going to be okay, that I'm, I'm going to give you security, and I'm going to change the channel, and all these sneering media people who roll their eyes at me and snort like I'm an announcer at a tractor pull, they're snorting at you. They're an elite. They think you're a bunch of hillbilly idiots. Trust in me. I'll get you through this. And in, in, in Trump's chunk, which, you know, is what won with the Electoral College, though I don't think it's a big enough chunk to get reelected, it, it plays. It's, it's a simple narrative, and they have somebody to believe who's telling them it's going to be okay. No doubt about it. Yeah. You know, you talk about miracle cures. There was a, a story that surfaced about a, uh, a battle between uh, Peter Navarro, Trump's trade negotiator uh, who's been pulled into this to manage supply chains and uh, and Dr. Fauci over how vigorously the president should be leaning into these drugs, hydroxychloroquine, a drug used for malaria and lupus as sort of miracle drugs for this, which has become a meme on the right. Laura Ingram has made it her personal uh, mission to uh, uh, to push this. But it is a weird and it seems to me dangerous thing for the president. It's one thing to play a successful executive on TV or to play a president on TV, but to play a doctor on TV 
seems dangerous to me. And to let uh, let Navarro have uh, hold sway over Fauci, you know, I suggested yesterday that maybe uh, Fauci should just take over trade policy uh, after this. Oh, he'd probably be better at it. Navarro's been no no big winner. But I today's New York Times really put the old clobber on Navarro because apparently he wrote the memo at the end of January warning Trump. So I have a feeling that uh, the president going into his Stalin playbook is going to wonder what what if. Peter's the guy who's leaking that he warned everybody. So I, <laughs> he may need Dr. Fauci to, uh, to help him recover after the, the trouble he's going to have internally. Yeah, that's an interesting memo. I mean, there is so much. I mean, this is where Trump has a problem. And there is so much evidence that they knew they should have acted. He thought he could oppose it, impose his will on this and somehow create an alternative reality in which this wasn't the crisis that it's become. And those six weeks have compounded the, the challenge we have. But guys, now that the expectations for this are so grim, if in fact all the, the social distancing that we have been doing in this country, other than the eight states where governors refused to, uh, what if uh, what if the, the the numbers are less dire than uh, earlier predicted? What if it comes in under that hundred thousand deaths and so on? Does it does it matter? Does does he then claim victory? Does that propel him in some way? Well, I have no doubt in thinking that that's his tactic. I mean, I think he started to preview this maybe ten days ago by basically saying. You know, this British study had us at 2.2 million deaths, but now we're talking about 100,000 to 240,000 deaths. Wouldn't that be such a big win that now if he gets under 100,000, he's going to be again saying, look, it's just I, 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 I was an 11 out of 10. I did it even better than you thought I did. Um, I definitely think that's where he's going to go. And then, I, again, I think he's going to throw in the idea of we did more testing, we did more of this, we did this, and uh, and try to go to the American people. I think in the end, I, to me, the number that I think is vexing to his political fortunes more than anything, and it clearly shows that even some of his own supporters believe it, that he just acted too slowly, that they didn't get this thing going in time. And I think as people have a chance to worry less about their own survival, but maybe do some more reflecting, does that impede him in a big way? Because people realize that whatever that number is, it is, it could have and it should have been less. Yeah, you know what's going to happen is that the that the Congress is going to start looking into these issues, and he will uh, he will call these politically motivated, and we'll be in the same kind of same kind of bind we've been in, where uh, he. Uh, disputes oversight as he did with the inspector general the other day and doesn't uh, take any uh, doesn't take any responsibility for it. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, the one thing uh, you know the 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 markets up the last couple of days, but the long term uh, recovery from this is going to it's going to take longer than I think Trump would like, and that piece of it is is a harder thing to spin. Though the checks are beginning to arrive, and he may offer himself as the answer to that as well. Those two things are connected because Trump will want to immediately get the economy going again. That's what he's most worried about, and that's a huge political danger to him. And so his instinct is going to be to take the foot off the brake on on the current social distancing and get people back to work quicker than is probably prudent by public 
health standards. So Trump could literally snatch a defeat from the jaws of victory on this thing by saying, everything's fine, we're back to work, and then having a second surge of it, particularly in states so far that have not had a high incidence but could definitely have a comeback. Um, because we know this virus travels, and we know now uh, that a lot of people who carry it are asymptomatic, so you don't know they have it. So it, it, it's actually lurking out there in Indiana, even though they haven't had the spike, so to speak. So I think Trump, yet again, may get in the way of his own luck on this, if it is better, and we don't know that yet, than some of these projections. I think the other thing working for Trump, and I alluded to it before, is there's just a nature in the cable media coverage to go to the bigger disaster the better. And just to add drama to it, I don't think it's malicious or on purpose, but the the worst estimate of trouble does rise to the top. And that creates an expectation that if if it doesn't happen in reality, which will be a blessing and a miracle and a good thing, Trump is set up to start trying to declare victory, which is his instinct even in a defeat. So I I think actually you're onto something there that that could be the narrative later. But my guess is he'll screw it up by, by not not holding on long enough because he's afraid of economic pain. Gibbs, you uh, when you watch these, pre- you you were pummeled by questions for years uh, for in that press room. When Trump says stuff like, uh, "Well, we inherited a broken testing system," uh, I mean, which is absurd on the face of it because there was no coronavirus to to, to develop a test for until 2020, and it was the CDC that kind of fumbled. Uh, the thing in the beginning, or when he says the way we're doing a great job, the way they handled that H1N1 swine flu thing back in 2009, that was horrible. That was a disaster. (laughs) Well, 12,000 Americans tragically died back in 2009. This will dwarf that by, even under the best scenario, by several orders. But nobody... But but nobody is challenging him or asking the professionals there their view on this. Um, Do you think that – I mean, I know the media is trying, uh, and they're asking a lot of legitimate questions that he blows away. Um, Should they be leaning in even more? I think so, and I think you see – I think one of the clips we have already played, you know, when he gets really tough questions and gets genuinely frustrated, he tends to actually stop taking questions and he leaves. I I do think, I I do think they've, they've got to, they've got to figure out how to ask their questions in a better way. They've got to ask them in a way that doesn't allow him after seven or eight words to interrupt and give uh, what he wants uh, the people to to know and believe, and and you can see it in in his own administration's uh, inspector generals. Though I, I I flinch every time somebody says inspector general around him because I feel like we're going to add to the weekly unemployment <laughs> claims as soon as he learns who that person is. But you know, look, there's a lot. You have a lot of control in that room, standing at that podium. You determine who and how the ball is dribbled. And he's taking maximum advantage of that. I think if you're a reporter and you want to get the the information you're trying to get about some of these statistics or whether testing is was faulty and whether it's actually working and what have you, um, you know, it really requires some a couple things. I think some deep expertise in what they're working through. Uh, as well as a doggedness in continuing to ask the question, even as the president's interrupting, to try to get some of that information. Again, you see that he's trying not to put in front of the American people, because of these big ratings, any alternative to 
the billboard of this was a 10 out of 10. So let's talk about the election. Uh, and where do you guys, how do you guys think uh Biden is doing in this. You start hearing some complaints about the fact that he is sort of sequestered there, I think for some good reason uh, in his basement. But, uh, you know, you see the president out on the podium. You see Governor Cuomo out on the podium uh, going to New York at one point, touring the area and so on. Um, And it makes it it feels like it makes uh, the VP look uh, a little passive in response. Yeah, he doesn't have a platform. It's a really, really tough situation. But if you're not in the middle of the president's constant screwing up, it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, but I don't think they figured out a way. He's not a governor. He's not a public health expert. He's not a president to get a legitimate way to be in the dialogue every day. So I don't think it's the worst thing in the world, but they're, they're going to have to figure out kind of Biden 2.0 in a month or so, how to kind of re-enter the campaign in the right and powerful way. I, I think he's he's kind of got a mulligan right now where he can he, he can exist in the situation and the spotlights on Trump, which he wants it to be because Trump's failing the test. But they're going to have to emerge with a really good Joe. And I, if I were them, I'd take the advantage of having some time to bring. Robert, he's doing out. podcasts. He's doing. He started his own podcast. He's doing uh, uh, TV interviews. Uh, what what more should he be doing? I I think he's doing the right things. I think, as as Murphy said rightly, he just doesn't have an existing platform uh, to break into programming and cable that is focused on you know medical experts as much as anything else. And I think it's just really tough to do that. They've tried. It's been really difficult. Um, I, I also agree with Murphy that I think it is, it is a good time. They're transitioning from a primary campaign to the presumptive democratic nominee campaign, uh, which means there's a lot of growing that has to be done. A lot of foundation building, um, and, and as Murphy said, gives them time to think about what does this new world look like? Um, just think about if we have, if we don't have a democratic convention or we have a virtual democratic convention. Before you make that point, we do have Biden yeah. uh, actually raising that. Like a day after the DNC announced that they were moving the convention to August, a week before the Republican convention, uh, he had this to say about whether he thinks that's going to move forward as scheduled. Well, we're going to have to do a convention, may have to do a virtual convention. I don't I think we should be thinking about that right now. The idea of holding a convention is going to be necessary, but we may not be able to put 10, 20, 30,000 people in one place. And that's very possible. Again, let's see where it is. What we do between now and then is going to dictate a lot of that as well. But my point is that I think you just got to follow the science. Listen to the experts. Basically, what he's saying is he has doubts. But I will say this, that maybe part, part of that answer gives you a sense of why he's not breaking through. Um, if he had started that answer with, let's follow the science, it might have been a pretty boring answer and might not have been what people wrote stories about, which was the Democrats are going to a virtual convention. They may get there. Um, I'm just not sure that's the news that he needs or wants to be making when he has any sort of real estate. But look, I, I think, again, back to what Murphy said, I, I, they've got to spend some time thinking about what this looks like. Because if you think about the big introductions of presidential candidates through these conventions, you know, it, it may not be that we don't have 20,000 people inside of, uh, of an arena. He may not get 
a, a, a real keynote address. Right. He may not get four days of programming to sort of put some real flesh on the bones about what who Joe Biden is and what makes him tick and what his values are. And I know people certainly know a lot about Joe Biden because he was the vice president. Uh, but, you know, this is a very different world that he's in and they need all of that real estate. Yeah, they've got to understand and, and reality will make everybody understand that the old almost 100-year-old model of crowd-centric presidential campaigns is over. It's dead. The virus killed it. You know, I think some of it's an anachronism anyway. Why do we need these conventions? But I think they need to grab this and make a thing out of it. Trump psychologically needs the rally and the the adoring crowd. So Trump's going to force a convention even if he breaks public health sanity to do it. So Biden ought to skate in the opposite direction, you know, and we're going to have a big convention about renewal, but we're going to slide it back and we're not going to pack a room and and, because I don't want to read about 12 people dying from this um, and just go on the offense. So it makes it harder and harder for Trump to have a crowd. But I I think that just on that point, I I think I think that he that should have been maybe his answer, which is, look, uh, and I think that's where Robert was going. I think we have a responsibility to listen to the experts and listen to the scientists on this. And I, you will, will if the, if we're able to have a convention, we're going to have one. But I'll tell you what, I'm not going to do. I'm not going to do what the president did and suggest that we're going to have it come hell or high water because hell or high water could mean a lot of people getting sick and a lot of people dying. And I'm not going to be, uh, I for one, I'm not going to be responsible for that. He, right. he could have made, uh, he could have made more of that. Anyway, you were finishing. Finish your point. I've got a sleazy, underhanded trick for the Democrats, not my normal audience for these things. And two, I've got a Creskin prediction. The sleazy trick is, hey, Democrats, if you're going to move the convention, for Christ's sake, finally, finally move it to the week after the Republicans. Because we've been doing that to you for 50 years. It's better to have the second convention. It's one of our things. Trump will go crazy. It'll be just like vote by mail. He'll try to move it, and you can make him petty and everything because you, you own public health. The second thing is I predict, this is my Kreskin thing, I predict a future of flying cars. I predict that the serontology testing, the blood testing, which is very low tech and the tests can be scaled up. There are already a couple million of them coming off like this week that test to see if you have the antibodies or not. There's a lot of talk about this that once you might have had the disease, then you can reenter society. It will be possible in October and maybe September to get back into the crowd business with people who are beyond the disease. So we might be in a world where micro crowds of 1,500 or 2,000 people fill the vacuum and look pretty good on television and are part of a wave of uh, just an optical subtext of we're back, which could be a very important October in the psychology of the country. Now, could be good for Trump, back to our declare victory theory, but it, it, it also could, could I think, have a wave of we're past this, it's over, which could hurt Trump because you leave him in the rearview mirror with the virus. So I think we will see crowds at the end of the year, whether or not in time for a convention, we don't know. Hold on, I'm I'm still looking up serontology. So I I'll, yeah, blood uh, testing. Oh, oh yes, okay. Um, look, I I just we 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 need to leave this, but I will say this to Robert's point. You're right that conventions are an anachronism. Nonetheless, they provide a vehicle for a candidate to tell their story to tens of millions of Americans in the way they want to tell it. And they give a chance for the candidate to address, you know, perhaps as many as, 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 as 40 million Americans. 
And that is a really, really big thing. And that would be a great sacrifice if Biden can't do it as is likely. You know, I don't know exactly what a virtual convention would look like, but it's pretty clear that the uh, audience would probably be less. I mean, maybe I'll be proven wrong on that, but I just don't see how you can do the things that you would do at a convention in terms of mass media that, uh, you know, it's just not as interesting. Well, that that's actually an eye-opener to me because I thought conventions were an opportunity for the media to attack the Republican platform, which is what – because they make the mistake of reading old chapter 4211 where we're against trigonometry and um, <laughs> and the woman's right to vote or other stuff that gets slipped in by the damn platform committee. Uh, of course, it's a love fest over on the Democratic side. I do think you, you could combine the two. You know, they ought to call Hollywood – and there are some A-list people and make the first really great convention film, which could be night one. And start now when you have time to do it right. There is cool technological stuff they could do. So my guess, you know, this happened in entertainment. When the last writer's strike, the writers decided to show the studios a lesson by going out on strike. This is my my uh, fighting union, the WGA West and East. Anyway, what happened? Well, Hollywood figured out how to make shows without writers, and reality television was invented. So my guess is something compelling will be invented that might be a hybrid of the traditional convention because it's just too important not to communicate. It just might be about individual screens rather than a crowd or a small crowd. Of, again, you can test your way to 2,000 people. But the crowd-based model is dead, and the campaign that embraces that, at least this year, uh, is going to have an advantage. Don't fight it. Time for the mailbag, but before we do, here's a word from one of our sponsors. You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A good and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now and it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects, zero, for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to ReliefBand.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. 
So head to ReliefBand, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. All right, we're here with the mailbag. If you have a question for the hacks, you can email it to us at Secret Hacks Underground Headquarters. Our email address is hacksontap at gmail.com. That is hacksontap at gmail.com. And don't forget to please rate us on iTunes. It really helps get the podcast out there. All right, a question for Axe from Shane. If he's way ahead in the polls in the fall, why should Joe Biden debate President Trump? Debates aren't Joe's strong suit, and I've always thought that televised debates with Trump, a television producer by trade, are a bit like wrestling a pig. Joe Biden doesn't need to build a brand at the electorate, so why debate at all? Or why not put conditions on the debate like the release of 10 years of Trump's tax return? (laughs) Max, what do you think? Look, first of all, I don't think Joe Biden's going to be way ahead of Donald Trump in the fall. I don't think the electorate is structured that way. Trump has a very committed base. We've seen it through this crisis. His numbers have have uh, have held uh, steady. So uh, there's going to be a close race in November. Uh, I think that uh, it would be a, a, a decision born of weakness not to debate Trump. I think Biden has to go in there and confront him. And I will tell you that I worked with Biden through two vice presidential debates and uh, saw him do uh, uh, very, very well. So uh, you know, I, I would not. Uh, I, and 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 it's an opportunity. I mean, you know, we should. There are certain fixed opportunities that you will have to be prepared for and take advantage of in a presidential race. A convention was one of them. We talked about that already. Debates are another. Do not make the mistake of thinking that people know Biden and that he doesn't need every opportunity yeah. he can to flesh out his own experience and familiarize themselves with him. So he has to, I think, take the risk of debating. Trump. I think the real question is, does Trump debate? Uh, You've said, Murphy, before that he can't resist the audience and he will uh, debate. But uh, uh, I expect that there will be debates. And I think Biden uh, will will be required to show up and should want to show up. Yeah, look, if you want to be president, you got to beat the bully. You got to win a debate. So he's got to be there. And my guess is the dynamic will be more about Trump being afraid because Trump will do the Sinatra thing where he'll say he won't at the last minute he will on his conditions to be the star. And uh, there's no ducking it for Joe, nor should he. Gibbs? I absolutely agree. I mean, I don't think you can skip it. I don't think uh, that's going to be an option either from an electoral standpoint of having some huge lead or uh, in giving away something that just has to be done. So Gibbs, Ellen, says, I'm wondering why news outlets who show the daily press briefings or whatever they are don't run a split screen with the president's tweets to contrast with what he says in public uh, on Twitter. Uh, how what, how should the, the media, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but how should they be dealing with his press briefings and fact checking and uh, all of that? Well, I, I look, I think they're struggling a little bit, but you can see in the last week or so, they've understood a little bit more of what these press briefings are. They're, they're in many ways, Trump's new rally. And I, I think you have seen the, the chirons at the bottom of the screen do more fact-checking. Uh, I was watching yesterday, uh, and they cut away for commercials. They're cutting away at certain points and coming back for some of the scientific experts. I think they're going to continue to experiment with how to try to keep this as much factual as they can. But understand that um, 
they are never going to fully cut away from the remarks of the president of the United States. They're, they're not equipped to make those decisions. Um, they're not strong enough to make those decisions, even if they wanted to. And quite frankly, it is sometimes interesting and compelling TV to watch him uh, argue with a reporter about a report that exists and was produced by his own government that he doesn't want to talk about. I think they will experiment with doing some try to do some real-time fact-checking and try to do some stuff afterwards, uh, but I think it is really hard to not show them. You know, back in the old days, Sam Donaldson was a great purveyor of television because he had an old-school, deep radio voice, and he could just boom through anything. If I were running one of these networks, I would dig into the uh, the talent pool, and I would get somebody who is tough, fearless, and has that booming voice because somebody taking on Trump with just stature on a follow-up, with, with just the theater of it, who is stronger than these kind of polite people we have now who are doing the best they can, but it would it would be more effective, I think. I think you just don't have a, a strong, noisy person. I, I think that there's been plenty of good – I mean, I, I raised a couple of questions earlier, but I think the media has done a very, very good job. We, we mentioned uh, – we mentioned John Carl, uh, you know, uh, uh, Caitlin Collins from CNN has been very, very good, and uh, as has Jeremy Diamond. Uh, uh, you know, there, there are, uh, uh, you know, obviously uh, Peter Alexander from NBC asked a perfectly legitimate and 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 strong question uh, that got a rebuke. Basically, the the stronger and and more incisive the question, the more. Uh, peevish the president becomes. But they're hanging in there. Uh, Yamish uh, Alcindor from uh, PBS, uh, remarkably uh, calm in the face of the president's tirades. Uh, so, you know, I think the media is doing a, a good job. I do think he, the president understands what Robert said. No one's going to carve away from him. It's his show. He's got the podium and he's going to do whatever the hell uh, he wants. This question, Murphy, is from Steve, and it is clearly directed to you, and you'll understand why in the first clause. He says, this one may be too bleak even for the dark arts you practice, <laughs> but how likely is it that Pence's team has thought through a scenario uh, where Trump gets COVID-19 and the cabinet has to invoke the 25th to put Pence in charge? This has become more than a science fiction question or a theoretical question because that's exactly what's happened in Britain with Boris Johnson, who has had to right. cede his power to his foreign secretary while he uh, is in intensive care with the coronavirus. Yeah, it's not a, a crazy thing. And I I have no knowledge that the Pence folks have done it, but I would bet a million dollars they have. Um, maybe not quite as tricky as the question postulates, but basically saying, look, the Pence staff knows what they're dealing with with Trump. And I'm sure they have a secret tracking chart of how many pounds of meatloaf a day hoping for more. Um, I am sure they've thought through the politics of all this. And I'm sure they've wondered if an older guy in not perfect health like Trump were to get the disease. And that doesn't mean they're rooting for it. They're not out licking doorknobs in the White House hoping for it. But but they're, they're politicos and there's some dark arts people in that orbit too. So I'm sure they very quietly discussed it and what they would do in the, in the event of uh, the president coming down with the bug in any serious way. Let me just say, if there's one thing that will keep President Trump safe is the uh, force of will involved in uh, his resistance to ceding power to anybody. Uh, and so <laughs> uh, it may give him some uh, uh, extraordinary immunity. 
I want to get to last call because I know we all have the same thing on our minds for last call. But before we do, here's a word from one of our sponsors. And now it's time for last call. All right, guys, I've been waiting all all show for this because I got something that's really sticking in my craw. This this captain of the USS Theodore Roosevelt took action to try and protect his crew when a outbreak of COVID-19 started spreading uh, through the ship. Uh, He wrote a letter to his superiors. That letter leaked and he was fired by the Secretary of Navy for that. And compounding it, the Secretary of Navy then addressed the crew that gave their captain a, a, a huge ovation when he left the ship. This is what the Secretary of Navy had to say. And if he didn't think that information was, was going to get out into the public, in this information age that we live in, then he was A, too naive or too stupid to be the commanding officer of a ship like this. The alternate is that he did it on purpose. It was a betrayal. Uh, so here's my proposition. The captain should be reinstated and the Secretary of Navy should be fired. Uh, for being such an asshole and so insensitive, and you know the re- the the uh, the reaction that uh, he, the crew uh, had to his remarks were so fundamentally negative. And I've heard from Navy uh, young Navy uh, folks uh, about this, who said you know morale sort of Navy wide has been hurt by this. It just 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 outrageous. I couldn't agree more. The guy's a creep. He ought to be thrown overboard. The captain was a hero. You know, we don't run the Prussian military here in America. We have citizen soldiers, people who volunteer to serve to protect our country. And to treat them with the disrespect that they're like cannon fodder for the PR machine of the White House, that a a, a, a guy with a distinguished career, by the way, Captain Crozer, who's highly respected, went through the channel. The ossified channel ignored him. He wrote a tough letter. It got into the media. Now we know President Trump got upset and, and sent a lightning bolt to the yes men at the top of the Defense Department, and they acted. It It is part of a chain of things, the 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 SEALs with, with Gallagher and the war crime, where military honor is being corrupted at the top, and it's punishing the citizen sailors uh, and airmen and soldiers who serve this country. And it ought to stop, and, and, and this guy— uh, the Navy secretary ought to acting because he can't get confirmed another Trump drag. He ought to be walked off the gangplank. I couldn't agree more. It's disgusting. Well, guys, I'll make it three for three on this. Um, it was stunning to hear these comments, particularly because this acting secretary uh, apparently fired the captain for losing his cool and, and not being concerned enough that something might leak into the media. And then, apparently flies 8,000 miles, lands on the aircraft carrier, and does exactly what he just fired somebody for doing. I cannot imagine what the culture of that ship must be like now. It is an important part of our arsenal in an important part of the world, and it is got to be nothing short of a mess. David, you and I uh, had the good fortune of working with uh, a patriot uh, in Admiral Mike Mullen, who was the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for a good portion of the time that you and I both served in the White House. And Admiral Mullen last night in the newspaper said he was simply appalled at what was said. And I, I think that is, uh, it is appalling. And I think that 
acting Navy secretary ought to resign or be fired uh, right now. Hallelujah. Yeah, and let's just say a word to everybody out there who's uh, who's suffering with the virus, everybody out there who's suffering economic privation as a result of uh, the virus, and to all those healthcare professionals and first responders who are risking themselves in order to keep us safe. You're, you're in our thoughts, and we hope for better days. Well said. Be safe. All right, guys. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. thanks.